Welcome to the Single Cell World, the podcast for scientists in which we disentangle single cell technology. Here, frustration and failure are transformed into clarity and understanding. I am Katia Motinho, and in this podcast, I want to share with you my experience in single cell research. How? In the form of useful advices that you can use in the lab after each episode. Ready to learn? Let's start. Welcome to another episode of the Single Cell World podcast. I hope everything is good on your side. And today we will be talking about one of the most groundbreaking single cell RNA technologies on the market, the Evercode solution. Some of you may not know what I'm referring to right now because not a lot of people call it like this, including me. <laughs> I refer to it as Pars Biosciences Technology or Pars Biosciences Kits. And with me to tell us everything about it, I have Charlie Rocco, the founder and CTO of this company. Hi, Charlie. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So before we enter in the technology, I would like to know a little bit about you. Where are you from and how did you end up co-founding Pars Biosciences? Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'm from the uh, East Coast of the U.S. originally from the Washington, D.C. area. I uh, came to uh, Seattle, Washington on the on the West Coast here for graduate school at the University of Washington, where a lot of my uh, PhD work ended up being around single cell transcriptomics all around technology development. And I think in the beginning, it was very much like an academic project, very much just thought about, okay, how can we create a really cool technology that we could write a cool paper on? But kind of as time progressed during my PhD, it kind of became more and more apparent that, hey, like people could actually use this technology and it could be actually pretty useful in other people's hands too. So that was when we, you know, many years later, after we had something working, decided to start a company here and launched our, our first product here in 2021 to kind of actually try to deliver on that mission here. Thank you. And what are the goals of the company of Pars Biosciences? At a high level, I think our, our high level goal is, is really just to actually accelerate research. I think so many people have so many cool, like very, very innovative, good, and even crazy ideas that are, like we believe, really are going to basically be the, the future of, of medicine. And I think from our perspective, it's our responsibility to kind of help accelerate everyone else's work go faster. And I think we've seen single cell sequencing is really, really powerful from a data perspective. There's a lot of things you can do with it. From our perspective, we really, really want to help people scale up their experiments. And by doing that, we hope that we can actually help people do things much faster, you know, maybe do the project quicker, maybe get a bigger insight because they can do a larger scale experiment and ultimately push research in the right direction here to being more translational and ultimately to save people's lives or understand new phenomena. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Besides scaling up, you also want to help in terms of logistics, samples logistics, and we will talk about this after. Definitely. Yeah. Let's start then with the technology. The first kits that were commercialized were the Evercode wall transcriptome. And with these kits, what information do we get? So we get the full transcript of mRNA. We get the three prime, the five prime. Can you give me more details? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so our first product that we, we launched here is, as you mentioned, to do single cell whole transcriptome sequencing. And so that's basically do single cell RNA-seq. It can be on cells or nuclei. And we actually use both PolyDT and random hexamer primers. So while we do have some three prime bias, we actually do collect information across the whole transcript, which is which is quite interesting. So for different applications, that can actually be quite useful. We have a basically three different size kits to go anywhere from like 10,000 cells to 100,000 cells to up to a million cells. In 
a single experiment. And I think one of the things that you you mentioned that's worth pointing out and emphasizing is that uh, you can actually do kind of the whole single cell workflow from our kits without the need for any custom instrumentation. So that makes it super easy to get started. If you're interested in doing, you know, single cell for the first time, we interact with a whole lot of folks like that, which is really rewarding. Honestly, you know, you can basically get a smaller scale kit, get started, get your hands wet on on some data analysis, and then know that you can scale up once you're ready to do that on, on your project. Okay. So the input, as you mentioned, can be cells or nuclei. We can use both, right? What about the species? Can we use all the species human cells, uh, zebrafish cells, <laughs> everything, all the cells that we can get in suspension. Yeah, I'd say basically any eukaryotic cell shouldn't, has worked so far. I think, you know, there's so many things out there that I think researchers are working on. It's actually one of, it really is one of the cool things of, of being able to be a technology provider to uh, researchers. You get to see so many different things, but, but yeah, it works on eukaryotic cells. Okay. Yeah. And what about the starting material? It needs to be fresh or can we use cryopreserved material like resuspended DMSO, for example, or snap frozen? Can we use this type of preserved material? Yeah. You can use essentially any of those starting sample types. I think maybe one of the things you're potentially alluding to is the idea that uh, we actually also start out with a fixation step. So the way that our technology actually works relies on cells or nuclei being fixed in suspension at the very beginning of the assay. And it actually comes with a lot of benefits because if you have, say, like a fresh sample, maybe you're collecting a sample from like a hospital, you know, you can actually get that sample. You can do the fixation, which is relatively quick. It's like 30 to 60 minutes long to do. And then once you do that fixation, you can store cells in the freezer for up to six months. And so it kind of separates out the, the need to do any immediate library prep from when you get the sample. In some cases, it can actually be pretty difficult. But, you know, it, it does work on cryopreserved cells. We've done, take a lot of cryopreserved cells. We'll actually take them from a cryopreserved state. We'll fix them. We'll freeze them again. And then when it's convenient, we'll, we'll go ahead and run the assay at a later date. Um, and we also had a lot of customers work on snap frozen tissue. Typically, when you do snap frozen tissue, you'll put that in nuclei, not not so much cells, just because of the nature of how that tissue was frozen. But it works really great within, within single nuclear suspension. You do free uh, fix your samples. You want to throw that in the freezer. So we do we do uh, recommend putting that into the minus eighty at this point. And so, but but yeah, uh, that that would definitely be the recommendation. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what about the number of cells that we need to start? It will be different if we use different uh, kits of different sizes, right? A one million cell kit, we will need more cells than from the the one that uh, is small. But for the smallest kit, how many cells do we need input? Yeah, so for input, uh, basically the really for essentially all three size kits for these, the, the 10,000, 100,000 and million cell kits, we, we usually say that you should have a, a your first run, assume that you will have about a 30 to 50% retention for your first run. And that's usually on like the more conservative side. And so, but we would recommend kind of starting off with that. And, you know, the, the nature of, of why that is, is that, you know, sometimes cells will stick to some plastics. It's a very simple thing. It's, it kind of happens in, in every assay here. We, we have seen that basically after you do your first run and folks who've been on their, you know, third, fourth, fifth run, 
the retention rates actually increase quite quite high to even like 70, 80% sometimes. That, that's kind of the recommendation. And, and we do have a, our support team will definitely provide that recommendation when they talk with like say a first time user. Yeah, I think with any protocol, we need to get used to the protocol. This is really important. So it's normal that if you use more, the retention, as you said, will be higher. Like the number of cells that we get at the end will be higher. We'll not lose so many cells. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and the nice thing is that the, the three different kits actually have a very similar workflow. And so once you've done it on like the mini kit, for example, like which is our 10,000 cell kit, you know, basically translating all that information that you've that first time assay experience, it translates really nicely without even doing like a million cell experiment afterwards. Mm -hmm. And can you explain me a little bit the workflow? So right now I have my cells fixed already in suspension in the freezer. And what do I do after? What is like the workflow until I have the libraries to sequence? Yeah. And so that's where it really comes down to the crux of how technology works. And so happy to kind of give a bit more of an explanation there. So, you know, the way that traditional single cell technologies have worked in the past has been very much based on like single cell isolation. So if you see some of these kind of older figures about the kind of single cell workflow, you know, it starts with your single cell suspension, then you have to do a single cell isolation step, which is usually in either like a microwell or like an oil emulsion droplet. And then you break a cell open within that one droplet or container rather, and then you do a bunch of biochemical steps to label the molecules. And one of the main kind of innovations here that we've, we've worked on here is essentially being able to do single cell labeling but sidestepping that whole single cell isolation event. And so we actually never isolate single cells and single compartments. And in fact, that, that step you mentioned, Katya, is the fixation is partly how we actually get around that. And so that fixation step is pretty critical to our assay because when you fix cells or nuclei, what we're actually doing is we're kind of anchoring the, the molecules inside the cell. And then after we fix, we also do a permeabilization step, which allows us to basically flow reagents to do biochemical reactions on the molecules that are all kind of like stuck in the cell. And so so in a way, we're actually using the cell itself as a container for its own labeling and barcoding. And so after that fixation steps occurred, we basically do what's called split pool combinatorial barcoding. And the way that works is um, you can have like a whole bunch of cells. So maybe just for simplicity, you can say we have like a million cells to, to start off with, a million fixed cells. What you can do is distribute those fixed cells into a 96 well plate that we provide. And every well in that 96 well plate has a well specific barcode associated to it. And so if you distribute, say, a million cells across those 96 wells, you'll have approximately, you know, a million divided by 96, which is about like 10,000 cells or so in each well. And what will happen is in each well, you'll have those approximately 10,000 cells being labeled with that well specific barcode. And that's can be done through an in-cell reverse transcription step. So we actually can get reverse transcriptase to go through the cell membrane along along with reverse transcription primers that can then bind to the accessible RNA and actually reverse transcribe. And at that same time, we're actually labeling with a well-specific barcode there. And so at this point, we haven't like uniquely labeled individual cells quite yet. We've kind of uniquely labeled partitions of cells. But what we can do is pull all those million cells back up together after what we call that first round of barcoding and all those million cells up randomly into a second place where we kind of can redo this process again. And it's actually very similar. The only difference is 
that instead of doing reverse transcription, we might do a ligation step at this point. And we're adding kind of a, a second barcode. And the main thing to think about here is that as cells are being split and pooled in this process, they actually start to take kind of a unique path in the process. So like all the cells that were in the first well in the first round of barcoding will be distributed pretty evenly across all 96 wells in the second round. And this unique path that the cells are starting to take is actually being documented as a combination of barcodes at the end of the transcripts, like the RNA transcripts. At the end of the day, we actually do a total of four rounds of barcoding. And by doing four rounds of barcoding, you're actually able to generate a really, really high number of possible paths any one cell can take. And by doing that, uh, the total number of paths is so large that by doing even like a million cells or so, the chances that any two cells follow the exact same path in the splitting and pulling process is actually quite low. And so it turns out that we can actually do single cell sequencing this way and get really low kind of doublet rates even by doing this. And uh, at the end of the day, we lyse the cells, do lobby preparation, get them ready to do sequencing on a whole suite of different sequencing platforms. And uh, we can then reconstruct single cell transcriptomes computationally. Yeah, well, it seems simple, very, very simple. <laughs> what I was thinking was the part of pulling everything together, how do you do that? You use a multi-channel or you go one well, like independently, each well, you go like, no, you cannot. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It's uh, use a multi-channel pipette with a 96 for a 96 bulk plate. So if you have like a 12 channel pipette, that's like eight pipetting motions. And so, you know, I think from a, maybe when you first think about it, it, it sounds a lot of pipetting, but when you're when you're doing it, you think about the data you can get out compared to like what you're doing for that assay, it actually ends up being like way less work compared to other assays. And so we definitely recommend multi-channel pipettes. We, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to do it with single channel pipettes, but the nice thing is that most labs have access to some of those. And so it's not to be given impediment. And robots, <laughs> I'm sure that some researchers already put robots pipetting alone and doing the pulling. Is this a possibility? Definitely. So yeah, I think it's a very clear uh, next step there. We have been working both internally and also with, with a number of customers on, on automating platforms here and ultimately want, you know, our goal is definitely to make things as easy as possible. And so that is definitely a big direction for us in the future. Yeah, because you only work with 96 well plates, not uh, smaller, like uh, not with 384 well plate. 96 is the ones to use, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just 96 well plates. And so, yeah, it's something that's, I think, pretty, something that most people like, I remember when I was in like grad school, even like my like first year of grad school, I was doing a bunch of like 96 volt plate assays and stuff. So it's something that I think a lot of people are are used to and or, or at least can get used to pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also to put in the robots, <laughs> putting robots pipetting for us, it's easier. When I started in single cell, we were using robots to, to pipette 96 well plates and it was kind of easy, standardized. The problem was when you try to reduce the volumes and that's the problem. So here, there's no problem. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good point. That's a that's a really good point. And actually, one of the one of the nice things as well is that like we even within our ninety six well plates, we don't have like super small volumes even for like a ninety six well plate assay. So it makes it even like more amenable to automating just because you could have like you can't even afford to have a little bit of dead volume, and it's not like the end of the world. It's not like the whole assay is now destroyed or anything. So that's that's definitely a lot, a lot of benefits there for uh, getting this onboarded for uh, on automation. Yeah, because there are always dead volumes. And 
then when we are pipetting manually, there will be also a little bit of differences between volumes, even if the multi-channel is calibrated. Yeah, this is things that happen. So it's good that you are using like big volumes to do this. Yeah. So I will have to buy the kit, of course, but do I need any other specific material to use with this kit? I know that instruments we don't need, but the specific brand of multi-channels, the plates, you told me that it already come with a kit or uh, we need to buy. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we, we do try to provide as much as possible. I'd say some of the things that you, we'd probably say the big things you're going to need are, yeah, like multi-channel pipettes. You're going to need to have access to a centrifuge and then you'll need to have access to a thermocycler that can hold a 96 volt plate. So those are things that, you know, we've, we've seen is, is in a lot of labs, but but kind of the three main things that we always tell people will be pretty important you have in your lab. And then, you know, there's like, you know, I really think we provide quite a bit. We we, pro we don't provide like pipette tips. We don't provide like the SPRI beads, but really a lot of, really most of the reagents are are included into the assay. And, you know, it's actually for like a few reasons. Like one is just because it's a lot easier to start if you just get everything with the kit. It's, we've all kind of been in that situation where you're like about to start like a big assay and then you realize like, wait a second, I didn't order that one other thing that I'm supposed to have. And then all of a sudden you like have to wait another week or two to get started. That's always pretty frustrating and not so fun. And, you know, we understand people doing a new assay. Like if we ask them to order a whole bunch of new stuff, like the chances that one might be missed is pretty high because we've all been there. I've, I've done it myself. And then, you know, the second thing is also just making sure the assay works really well. We've actually had a lot of experience in an academic setting, trying to get people to work on our academic protocol. You know, this is back when we were doing split seek uh, at the University of Washington. And we found that for our collaborators, it was very often they would like swap reagents out that seemed like pretty much like not like a big problem. Like you, at a high level, you're like, oh, it's probably fine. And then it would turn out that actually it's like really not okay. And so we're like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to like really make sure that people are going to get good data. We we should really should be making sure they're using all the things that we know is going to work well. And if it's something we haven't tested yet, then we just don't know. Like maybe it's fine, but maybe it's not. And we don't really want to be guessing as a company providing like a commercial product that someone's going to actually buy for. You know, it's, it's very different than just collaborating academically from, from our perspective. So that's some of the reasons why we're doing that. Yeah, that's great. It is the key for certain experiments. Some experiments, single cell experiments, they fail because of that, because we think, ah, oh, this buffer is the same and it's not. <laughs> Sometimes it's not. <laughs> <laughs> We always tell our team, if you ever end in the lab and then you pause and you're like, is this okay? It's probably fine. And we tell, we always tell them, stop. It's probably not fine. <laughs> you probably should actually look at, and look into that before you say it's probably okay. Like, let's, let's do some research on that before we just jump to that conclusion. But yeah, it's, it's very easy to do that because there's just so many things that in these assays to, to think through. So, yeah. Yeah. And the 96 well plates, you send them with a kit because this is what is one of the main problems for some type of experiments because of the plastic. Some plastic is not the proper plastic, the plates, normally the cheaper ones. And it happens that the cells stick to the plastic and we lose a lot of cells. In your case, you send the plates, right? We cannot substitute by a 96 well plate that you, we have in the lab. Yeah, exactly. So 
So we actually send all the 9612 plates. They're actually preloaded with everything. So, you know, you'd basically, to do the first round of barcoding, you actually just add your fixed cells straight into a preloaded round one plate that already contains all the enzymes and DNA barcodes and stuff like that and, and like the reverse transcription primers. So that's obviously really nice. And like I can tell you like, for folks who are doing it kind of academically, it was uh, very, very painful and, and led to a lot of errors uh, trying to fill all those yourself. So the nice thing is we have obviously a, a full-scale manufacturing team here who does that and we QC everything. So you don't have to worry about any of that anymore, uh, which is quite nice. So yeah, obviously we've tested the plastics. We also like, we provide even like the, the basins that you'd want to be pulling cells into because that that obviously is important as well. And I think we have obviously the, the key thing is, I think is like polystyrene. It just cells stick to polystyrene like crazy. So always, I think it's in our protocol. We, we, we ask people to not use that because that will, will definitely not be a fun time. I always want to use uh, polypropylene. And okay, after... I have my library at the end of the workflow that seems super simple. I have my library. You recommend to sequence to do short fragment sequences, I suppose. But did someone try already long read sequencing? Yeah, I actually have had a few customers who've done that, which is pretty cool. We've got uh, a few customers who've done it on PacBio and then also a few customers who've done it on Nanopore uh, sequencing. And so, yeah, I think there's preprint or publication out with the PacBio work. And then I know on our website, we actually have some data on Nanopore from our customers that we posted. And so, yes, yeah, it's definitely possible. I think one of the main things always uh, encourage people to think about when they do long read single cell sequencing is to, to make sure on the data analysis side, they've thought through what are the ways that they're going to analyze their kind of long read data? What are the research questions they're asking to make sure that they're fully set up? So like, for example, I think a very common application for long read sequencing is like isoform identification. I think we're in a, we're really well set up to, to actually do isoform identification from like a wet lab assay perspective, but there's, there's definitely things you want to think about when you do the analysis to make sure that you're going to correctly identify those isoforms once you get all that data. And, you know, we have we have really great biomechanic application scientists who can help out, but it's not like part of our standard pipeline. And so that's always something we want to work through and, and make sure that uh, people are set up to analyze that data. Yeah. PacBio also, they have a specific software to analyze this type of data. They also give support there. Yeah. The only, the only challenge is combining that with our single cell barcodes. So we have to kind of mash the software together a little bit to make sure that uh, they're correctly demultiplexing all the single cell data before they go into the pack bio software to do the isoform. So you're, you're totally right. And there's obviously a lot of help there, but it's just making sure those those things play nice. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that is still uh, in development. I will say the long reads apply to single cell experiments with a single cell technology that is right now available. And uh, so I think it's still in development, but it's another possibility. And I think for certain projects is the ideal, like, yeah to do long reads, yeah. For sure, yeah, yeah. And we have user, we have a kind of user-derived protocols to, to help folks who are interested in doing that or are considering it now. One last thing about this kit. It is like evolving, right? It's with an extra step, you can get more information, an extra step on the workflow. For example, we can study target genes with costume capture. And this is super important in the case we have specific genes that we would like to study or to include in our analysis with any old transcriptome assay, and correct me if I'm wrong, so you can do this, get costume target. Yeah, yeah. And so 
you're referring to kind of like maybe like a gene panel kind of idea. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing to touch on because, you know, one of the things that's really nice is that because we can scale up, you can do like, you know, now like millions of cells. And, you know, I think a very natural second question that you might be thinking about as like a, you know, as like a researcher is like, okay, so that's really great from a cost perspective. I can do millions of cells and the barcoding, but how about like the downstream sequencing? And if you really want to do like many multi-million cell experiments, there are some cases where you actually kind of know what you're looking for to a degree. And so like, this is typically more relevant in like more like clinical applications or translational applications where maybe you've already done a whole bunch of single cell RNA-seq at the whole transcriptome level. You have a whole bunch of data you're playing with and you maybe realize like there's like certain gene signatures or like there's like the certain differentially expressed genes that you know that's like kind of the most important thing you need to be getting in just a lot more samples or a lot more cells later on. And so the nice thing is we actually have a product that's called Gene Capture and you can actually take your whole transcriptome libraries out of any of our kits and you can basically just do one extra it's like one extra step to the workflow where you do a bead-based hybridization pull-down approach with a panel and so it's like uh probes that hybridize the genes of interest and you kind of pull those down with a tryptavidin bead-based approach and and the nice thing there is that you can now sequence say like a panel of like a few hundred genes and the reads per cell needed to actually you know sequence that can drop like almost as much as tenfold so maybe you know, we've actually shown in example data sets that like, you know, in a data set where maybe you would have sequenced 20,000 reads per cell, if you apply like gene capture and you're targeting like a certain subset of genes that you know drive the differential expression in that data set, like you can actually do like two, a 2,000 reads per cell sequencing and still retain really nice clustering and, and start to understand insights on the cell populations. And so that's, I think, a really, really cool kind of application that we're pretty excited about, especially on the higher end. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. So since we are kind of working with the final library that we will have from the whole transcriptome, we can even use this to do different projects, right? Imagine that I did the whole transcriptome assay and I have this library, but in, let's say, two years, I want to see panel of genes, target genes, and can I go to this library and do it, right? Yeah, exactly. You can. And yeah, I mean, the cool thing is that we don't need to go too much in the weeds of like the assay, I guess. But the, the nice thing is that we have our fourth split actually ends up being kind of like different tubes of cells that are all barcoded in the same experiment. And we call them sub-libraries. And effectively, you can sequence. So if you have like a, let's say if you have, it sequence like a million cells, in essence, you're actually going to have like 16 resulting tubes of about 60,000 cells or so in each one. And you can actually sequence each one of those separately or independent of one another. And so if you're doing one of these larger scale experiments, the nice thing is you can actually sequence just one of those sublibraries first, say like the first like 60,000 cells or so. And then based on that information, you can even go design a panel and then do much, much more higher scale projects in the future, even or even like design it on those on those cells that are in that assay. And so it's just a bit more flexibility. And because all the cells are barcoded in the same experiment, it's actually really nice to use that one sublibrary to infer how the rest are going to look. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it gives a lot of flexibility and possibilities for future projects. Who knows? What about CRISPR-Cas9? I know that you can also adapt or, again, add an extra step for projects where we do CRISPR-Cas9. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, uh, and you're probably touching on something we announced or have started shipping uh, not too long ago. It's called CRISPR Detect, which is another kind of application that we're now enabling with kind of whole transcriptome sequencing. So the idea here is, you know, 
there's been a pretty big explosion of just generally single pooled single cell CRISPR screens. And it, it makes a lot of sense why it's exploding as a field in research. Like the information you can get is so powerful. And, you know, the idea, right, is that you can do like basically on the order of like tens of thousands of like arrayed CRISPR screen work in like a single tube. And it's all about every single cell is like its own kind of test tube for testing perturbations now. The only real challenge on that is that when you start thinking about external design for old CRISPR screens, you know, if, if you have like a, say you're wanting to like perturbate like 10,000 genes or something, or even like a few thousand genes, you know, if you think about, okay, how many cells you need for perturbation that will fall typically between like 50 to like 250 cells per perturbation, depending on your parameters. And then you might say, okay, well, I have a different like sample conditions I want to, I want to run. And all of a sudden it kind of multiplies to the total number of cells in your sequence ends up being like in the millions. And, you know, maybe your pilot experiment will be smaller, but almost all these experiments now to be competitive with what's out there, it's going to end up being like multi-million cell experiments. And so that's where for us, it really fits quite well with, with kind of the scalability that we offer. And the main thing that we actually enabled with this CRISPR Detect product is the ability to actually capture that guide sequence in a pooled single cell CRISPR experiment so that you can actually tie that guide sequence, which you know identifies what kind of perturbation you're making to the resulting gene expression of that single cell. And so now that you can do that across millions of cells, it's obviously really powerful. And just to make things even more fun and more interesting, you know, you can even apply like the gene capture product on top of that. So, you know, if you had like a subset of genes that you really knew you want to test from your perturbation, you could even go and do that and just go nuts on the assay while still keeping costs. Like it's, it's actually like not prohibitive anymore, you know? Yeah. Are just extra steps, extra layers of information. No, no, it's great because what's happened until now is that to do all this kind of experiments so to do all transcriptome target assays or CRISPR-Cas9, we need to do different experiments and the costs of these are huge, but with your technology, no, you can just do extra steps that will cost a little bit, not a whole experiment, the time that you spend preparing the cells. It's really good. And besides the Evercode whole transcriptome, you also have the Evercode TCR. Can you tell us a little bit what is different and also what is the workflow, I suppose, that is kind of the same? But yeah, can you explain us a little bit of TCR and immune profiling? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, when we launched our like million cell whole transcriptome kit, now it's been two years now, I think. But and so when we did that, we had just a huge amount of researchers, especially in the immunology space kind of reach out and you're like, wow, like you can do a million cells in a single experiment. That's great. But like, you know, what would be really cool is we can get the immune repertoire from like our sample because like a big limitation in the immunology space for so long. And because we really just launched our TCR product recently, it's, it's still a very, very, very big limitation, honestly, is, is to understand like what is the full immune repertoire of like a patient. And, you know, for context, there's like these CDR3 regions here within uh, TCRs that really dictate how where T cells will bind really determines like how T cells recognize and kill kill uh, pathogens. And so there's been a pretty big area of research using single cell sequencing where they're trying to identify what different T cell subtypes are actually driving certain repertoires and, and whatnot. But it's so far been kind of in the context of like tens of thousands of cells. And if you think about kind of the total repertoire that could exist in humans, it's like on the billions of range. And so there's a big, very big disconnect. And I think even with our million cell kit, it's we're probably still just scratching the surface, but we're at least getting one order of magnitude higher on what is possible. And so, yeah, I think we're, we're really excited about that product. I think, you know, especially in like cell therapy and like CAR-T space, we really think it could help like quite a bit 
in, in actually helping these therapies get forward. And even on the QC process for CAR T cells, like how do you, there aren't like great ways that you can QC CAR T products yet. And we think there's really, really great ways to do that with single cell sequencing, as long as the scalability is there. So yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. In, in terms of the workflow, the way it works is it's actually very similar to our whole transcriptome products. The, the main difference is that there is like one extra step here where you end up enriching for your alpha and beta CDR3 sequences. And effectively, what you'll have at the end of the assay is for every cell, you're going to have two different libraries. You'll have, I guess, for every sub-library that has many cells, you'll have two different sequencing libraries. One is for the whole transcriptome and one that corresponds to the alpha and beta chains for CDR3. And then you can sequence those on like either Illumina or other sequencing platforms. And then we have a computational tool that will take actually both of those sequencing files and kind of match those back up together, match it back to the single cell and map the whole transcriptome with the repertoire of like kind of the CDR3 sequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And you talk about data analysis. This is a huge problem for a lot of us, a lot of researchers. So what about the data analysis? Do you have any software, a specific software that people can use? It's free, paid. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so we do have a software tool and it comes with anyone who purchases the kit gets free access to it. And so we do have a tool. Essentially, the, the way it works is you, after you do your all the wet lab work, you'll have a like a library of DNA to sequence, you'll sequence that on a sequencing platform here, and you'll get essentially FASTQ files out kind of the raw format. And what our kind of software tool and pipeline does, they can take those raw FASTQ files. And basically, you put that into the pipeline along with some other information from the experiment. So like if you multiplex samples, that would be something that we would want to understand how you multiplex samples in the assay so we can demultiplex correctly. But that's all kind of documented quite well. And then once you put that into the uh, pipeline, we basically reconstruct a single cell transcriptomes computationally. And at the end, you get kind of like two primary things. And this is pretty standard in a lot of single cell analysis here. So you'd get digital gene expression matrix, where it's kind of just a table with, you know, on like the rows is like cells and columns or genes, you have counts. It's a really important kind of file that you use for a lot of secondary analysis downstream. But the other thing we do is you also provide like a web report that provides really important QC metrics on how the experiment went. You kind of have like the barcode rank plot, the elbow plot, or everyone has different names for it. And then we also have like kind of gene saturation curves that gives people insight as to like, if I sequence this library more, is it worth it? Or should I just stop sequencing now? And then we also have clustering. So we have a kind of a second page on our web report that demonstrates kind of like your initial clustering. So if you're want to look at key genes of interest, you can just start immediately typing those in and seeing where they fall on the cluster map. And you can start identifying different cell types through that way. So really that web report, it's really intended to give you immediate insight after the, the pipelines finished running as to how your experiment went. And then it can even help you get some initial insights as to kind of what's going on in your experiment. Yeah, that, that's great. It's friendly user <laughs> or no, <laughs> or you need to know. Yeah, so I mean, the, the web report is like a really small file that you can send. It's intended to be sent to like any collaborator you have. So that's definitely a super easy to use file. Our uh, kind of standard out of the box pipeline, we kind of have two options right now. You can either run it on like your own cluster, like or server locally. So we provide kind of instructions on how to install this. And uh, we have bioinformatics application scientists who actually work with our customers to ensure that that goes smoothly. And then we do have kind of a cloud-based option here with DNA Nexus that's also available. And so that's preferred. Then we can also 
go through DNA Nexus and it's a bit more it's kind of like graphical user interface and prevents the need to, to use like command line based coding, I guess, to, to, to get the pipeline kicked off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's great that you have these options for biologists like me just to have a look of the genes and if everything went well and then what I call always deep analysis for people that really understand about uh, data analysis, coding. So yeah. It's, it's good. And so one last question. You talk about multiplexing samples. Is it possible to multiplex with antibodies or with lipids? Or when you talk about multiplexing, it's just pulling the samples in one tube, fix them and do the workflow that you mentioned. What is the multiplex that you are talking about? Yeah, for sure. So that's a good point because I don't think I actually touched on that quite yet. So the really cool thing about like, the parse assay is that you can the multiplex. It's actually kind of like built into technology. And so the way we actually multiplex samples is we just use the first round barcode as a sample identifier. And so what I mean by that is, let's say you're starting your assay. Let's say you have like, you keep it simple. You have like two uh, samples here. Well, if you have like a 96 well plate, what you can do is distribute the first sample across the top 48 wells and the second sample across the bottom 48 wells. And then you can continue in the assay. And then what you can do is when you get to the computational pipeline, you can tell our pipeline that, hey, I loaded one sample into the top 48 wells of round one and the second sample into the bottom 48 wells around one. And our pipeline can actually, like we know which barcode maps to which well. And so we can actually make sure we're pool cells together from uh, different wells to map to the same sample. And as you might imagine, because we have 96 wells, we can actually multiplex up to 96 samples where if you do have 96 samples and we have many customers who've done this now, you can actually just put one sample in one well in the first round, and then you can actually multiplex all 96 samples in a single go. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the initial amount, yeah, it will depend of how many samples you will multiplex. Yeah. Because I was thinking, okay, how many cells do I need if I do 96 samples multiplex? How many cells I need per sample in each well? You know, there is a minimum, a maximum. Yeah. So, well, the number of cells we'll need for one sample, if you're doing like 96 samples, is actually quite low because it's, you know, the way we like, we talk about it is like for, say, a million cell kits, you can do a million cells across anywhere from one to 96 samples. And so you can do one sample to get a million cells out, or you can do, say, like 96 samples where you'd be targeting to get about 10,000 cells out for each sample. And so the amount you need to put in is actually a lot lower, as you can imagine, if you're doing that 96 sample. I will just point out one last thing, which is quite important, is that because like none of this multiplexing would really even be possible or helpful unless you could do fixation up front. And if you think about like a real experiment, like what, what's going to you know, obviously everyone's experience is very different, but like typically you're not going to like all of a sudden have 96 samples coming in your lab all at the exact same time, ready to go. And so I think the real reason why this actually is enabled is because, you know, you can fix samples across different sites or locations or times, and then you can pull those samples together into like single runs to really take advantage of that sample multiplexing ability. Yeah. But they can multiplex samples that were fixed in different days, right? Absolutely. That's that, And that's exactly the, the goal there. And, yeah, no, I think the 96 samples, it's a little bit an extreme that, yes, as you are telling, it will not happen like that. No, no, no. And what about the technical support? 
You mentioned that you have a technical support field application scientist for the wet lab, like for the during the experiment, right? Until after the analysis. So there is technical support for the full experiment, right? Absolutely. So um, yeah, we have we have really phenomenal field applications support team as well. And so the way it works is, you know, if you were to decide to, to use a parse assay, you know, we'd have one of our field application scientists reach out and, and book a training with you. And we would kind of go through all the steps here, make sure you're in a good spot. I think one of the really, really important steps that I know you've talked about in your previous sessions, and I think probably everyone, all listeners are very aware of is sample preparation. And so we really spend a lot of time to make sure that we're preparing the sample to have the highest probability of success. And so, you know, it's obviously making sure you have high, high likelihood of good RNA content, good RNA quality, and that the samples are being handled in the best way possible going into the assay. And then, uh, of course, we have all the steps here. We, we do all the training for the wet lab portion as well. And the nice thing is that because there's a lot of like steps that are pretty, like people are pretty accustomed to, like I, like I mentioned, using 96 well plates and kind of standard like magnetic feed-based assays, it's something that a lot of people can get on board pretty quickly. But that cell preparation is, is really, really key and really important that we always want to hammer down. And our FAS team is just top-notch on working with customers on that. Yes, that is the most difficult part because I always say that companies, you develop the key, the technology, and you have R&D teams on the back, developing, improving it. A lot of years, I will say, of works to do it properly. And when they arrive to our hands, they are working perfectly. The problem is the input of the kit, that is the cells or nuclei. They need to be in good conditions. And sometimes people forget that part. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's funny. I mean, I think it's like we've all been there where you like see like there's like a single cell technology that's being demonstrated. And like, of course, the first thing you have to do is do it in cell lines. And you're like, look, we got great data in these hex cells. And everyone's like, okay, great. Like anyone can get hex cells to look good because like the cell prep is like you can throw those cells around and it doesn't matter. Like they're going to have great RNA anyways. And so that's where I think, you know, the real test is always like, how can you ask to perform in harder samples that are typically more alike what most people are working on? Because it's harder to sequence samples that are probably the most interesting samples that are going to end up being where you get like real scientific insight from. So I call it real life samples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, real life samples. How, how does the, the kit works now? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, anything else that you would like to add to talk about is your free time. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the probably other thing I wanted to point out, which is, you know, probably more directed towards any of the maybe like graduate students or folks who are maybe or postdocs who are in academia or something, you know, if you're interested in like starting companies and stuff, for example, when we were starting, we kind of thought it was like a big like black box. We were like, wow, this is like big and scary. You don't really understand how to get started. But the cool thing is there's a lot of really great resources out there. I would encourage honestly anyone to, to reach out to even myself to happy to chat. And you know, we we were very fortunate to have really great mentors and advisors, particularly when we were getting started, that really helped us kind of shape parts to where it is today. And you know, obviously I'd love to, to continue passing on whatever I can, the things that I know I've learned so far to others who, who might be interested, because I think it is something that I really encourage others who are interested in starting companies and interested in kind of pushing technologies they developed even to, to think about
about commercializing it because because it is a real way of getting your technology out there and getting people to really start using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that advice is great. It's true. <laughs> I think we are always a little bit afraid, especially if we were in the lab all our lives, right? Even me, that is a kind of different company <laughs> that I'm doing right now. But it, yeah, it's like, I, I don't know about business. I don't know about these, that. But as you say, there is always people that we can reach out and we can ask for advice. So yeah, everyone that is listening to us, <laughs> reach out to Charlie to know his, his story and what you shouldn't do. <laughs> as I always say, what people shouldn't do because I did it and failed. So that is a huge help because at least you will not repeat the same mistake. So yeah, reach out to Charlie or to me. Yeah, but for me, it's more about sample preparation. <laughs> so yeah. And what about uh, social media? Where can people find you? Parse Biosciences? Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, that I saw that you have Instagram. <laughs> what about you, Charlie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think probably either Twitter or LinkedIn probably works best. I think I have an Instagram account. I don't think I use it too much, <laughs> as a lot of my friends have told me. But yeah, I think, yeah, probably uh, LinkedIn or, or Twitter probably work, work best. And uh, yeah, we can can take it from there. Yeah, I will leave all the links in the podcast description for people to the website, your contact. So people like this, they have a place where they can go and just contact us for more information about the technology. And yeah, it's everything for today. And yeah, thank you, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Single Cell World podcast. If you think it was useful or you learned something new, Please spend some seconds rating this podcast on Spotify or leaving a comment on Apple Podcasts. It will make me super, super happy. For more tips or advice, follow me in Instagram or Twitter at Single Cell World or simply subscribe our website or blog at www.thesinglecellworld.com. Well, I will wait for you next Monday with a new episode.